This podcast is sponsored by Republic Book Publishers, which brings you books tackling the important issues of the day and the upcoming book, Aftermath, When It Felt Like Life Was Over by Alec Klein. For more information, please check out republicbookpublishers.com. Hi, I'm Eric Campman, and today I'm with Alec Klein. For years, Alec investigated cases where people were convicted of crimes they didn't commit. Suddenly, Alec found himself on the other side, being falsely accused himself. In a coordinated media attack, he was accused of misconduct as a professor at a top U.S. university and in a rush to judgment before he had a chance to defend himself, his career was destroyed. What happens when you have little hope? Alec gravitated to the unlikeliest of places among the unlikeliest of people doing the unlikeliest of things. This is the subject of his upcoming memoir, Aftermath, when it felt like life was over. A story about faith, forgiveness, and redemption, published by Republic Book Publishers. Alec is a best-selling author and award-winning journalist, formerly of the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal. His groundbreaking investigations have uncovered a wide array of wrongdoing and set free several prisoners who were wrongfully convicted of murder and accused of other crimes. He also has helped dozens of excessively sentenced women gain their freedom through parole and commutation. Hello, Alec. Hey, Eric. How you doing? I'm good. Great. So I just want to ask you some questions about the book and about what happened at uh, the university and uh, just share this with your, uh, your listeners, okay? Sounds good. Okay. So it's a height of irony that you spent much of your career investigating wrongful convictions and false accusations and then found yourself on the other side, falsely accused yourself. Tell me about your work investigating wrongful convictions and false accusations. Well, for the past decade, I've been investigating uh, cases involving people who have maintained their innocence, who were convicted of the worst crimes, murder in the first degree, uh, a variety of crimes throughout the country, I've investigated cases in Florida, a death penalty case down there. I've investigated cases uh, on the West Coast in Oregon. These cases are, are everywhere. And over the past decade, I've been working to try to understand, to get to the truth. In some cases, uh, we've been successful in helping people regain their freedom if they were wrongfully convicted. In one instance, a daycare worker in Illinois. She was sentenced to first degree murder and 20 years in prison. We were able to uh, uncover a revelatory letter written by a police detective who was involved in the investigation. That letter showed that the doctor who conducted the autopsy on the child who passed away was not convinced that this was a matter of murder. This document had never seen the light of day. Uh, we were able to publish it. It led a federal judge to reopen the case and ultimately set uh, this person free, Jennifer Delpreet. There have been a bunch of other cases uh, that I've investigated uh, along with others. 
including a case down in Florida where a man was convicted of murder and sentenced to something like 50 years in prison. Uh, We were able to identify a key witness who actually witnessed the murder, but couldn't be found by authorities during the time that this was being investigated by the prosecutors. This uh, witness that we came across, his nickname, by the way, was Maniac. And he actually earned that nickname. He was a pretty tough guy. But we met him in a prison and he explained how he actually witnessed the murder, never had said a word about it, but that the authorities got the wrong guy. This ultimately also led to the freedom of this Miami man who had spent many years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. There have been a number of other cases uh, like this that, that I've investigated, and I continue to investigate them. I think for, for me, one of the shocking things might be for those who don't follow criminal justice matters closely, it's that we have a system that sometimes makes mistake. Sometimes people are, in fact, wrongfully convicted. Sometimes people are falsely accused. The system is fallible. We are fallible as humans. There have been a number of studies about this, about how memory is malleable, uh, how what we think we saw isn't in fact what we saw. There are all sorts of studies about this that show how easy it is for someone to get ensnared in the criminal justice system and find themselves behind bars. We've been seeing that recently at the very top of the uh, justice system in Washington. Um, seems to be coming apart at that um, period. Uh, but um, I just am kind of curious, what got you into this? This is kind of an unusual career. And it, it, is it unusual for universities to have departments that uh, pursue these wrongful conviction cases? It is unique. Uh, my background was that uh, I was an investigative reporter for many years at the Washington Post. Uh, when I became a professor, uh, I was ultimately asked to take over a center uh, that investigated wrongful convictions. At the time, it looked at local cases in the Chicago area. But when I took it over, we began to expand and look at cases all over the country where people were wrongfully convicted. And I worked with students investigating these cases over many years. And I have to say the students did remarkable work uncovering the truth and bringing justice uh, in some cases. It was really remarkable. Uh, But it is, in fact, a pretty unique situation. In fact, I'm not aware of any other university that does this. Uh, In fact, where I did it, they no longer longer do it anymore. Well, it, uh, how long were you doing this? How, how, how long were you ahead of this department? I ran the uh, Medill Justice Project for about seven years, uh, from 2011 until uh, 2018. Wow. Uh, it seems like God's work to me. But then um, kind of you uh, run into sort of a, uh, in the book of Job, you run into all these uh, kind of accusations and these uh kind of events that just are totally out of sync with the nature of what you were doing. So tell me what it was, uh, how this came about. I mean, uh, when you were, you know, tell me what happened when you were falsely accused. 
Well, it was, uh, you know, as you point out, sort of the height of irony that for many years I was investigating wrongful convictions and false accusations. And then suddenly I found myself being falsely accused myself. But in 2018, I was uh, falsely accused of misconduct as a professor and my life was instantly destroyed. I was accused of uh, mistreating some students and staffers. And yet what was put out there in the media was grossly, grossly inaccurate uh, in complaints that were made to the university, none of the accusations accused me of any kind of sexual interaction, even though this was put forward as kind of a Me Too situation. The actual accusations that were filed with the university were a hodgepodge of complaints. Uh, for instance, uh, several students complained about the chair that they sat in in my office saying that it was slightly lower to the ground than the chair that I sat in, and they called it a uh, quote-unquote power differential. Uh, Several of the complaints were about student grades. Uh, In one instance, a student had received a B-plus about seven years earlier, and she wanted uh, an A-minus, which I actually gave her, uh, but the complaint was still about the the grade, and there were other complaints about grades. All of the complaints essentially focused on verbal interactions between me as the professor and those I uh, taught and worked with at least in most cases five years and in some cases up to a, a decade before. There was another example of a student who was suicidal and asked on a number of occasions to meet with me, and I First of all, I wanted to make sure she was getting care, which she said she was. Uh, but she, in many years later, after asking for uh, recommendations for jobs and help finding internships and that sort of thing, she accused me of uh, pressuring her into meeting with her, even though her very emails, uh, which I produced for the university, showed that she was pleading to meet with me. There was another example of a student who filed a complaint saying that I mocked her foreign accent while on a class trip to Florida. I checked my records and I wasn't in the state of Florida uh, when she said this occurred. And there was another, yet another example of a student who emailed me uh, how wonderful an experience she had with me as her professor and as her supervisor when she later worked as an intern. She wrote this email after she had joined the workforce, having graduated, and she was saying she was hoping that there would be another opportunity to work with me because it had been such a wonderful experience. But literally just a few days afterwards when uh, I was attacked in the media, this same student suddenly turned around and decided to call me a predator. So just to give you an example, these were the kinds of things that were happening. And I would just like to kind of sort of make a general statement, which is that as a professor for a decade at Northwestern, uh, I was also a professor and instructor teaching at uh, Georgetown and American universities for an additional five years. So for over 15 years uh, teaching students in an academic setting, Students 
would submit what are known as these sort of anonymous evaluations of their professor. And they can say whatever they want in these evaluations, and they do. Uh, they're free to say whatever they want without any kind of repercussions. And I can tell you over those 15 years, I was never accused of any mistreatment of my students. It was actually the opposite. They talked about what a wonderful experience they had had with me as their professor. But one of the things that happened that created the atmosphere that uh, destroyed my life was that in 2015, while I was running this center investigating wrongful convictions, there was an administrative assistant who worked at the center. She was on what's called a corrective action plan, which means that she was in jeopardy of being fired for uh, poor work performance. Uh, She abruptly quit and accused me of harassment. And the university investigated the matter and actually caught her in a number of documented lies ruling against her. And as a part of this, the university actually reached out to all they had interviewed as a part of this investigation to let them know that I had done nothing wrong and that this was to remain uh, a private matter. In fact, this uh, administrative assistant was not even allowed to apply for another job at the university again as a result of this. But one of the people that the university interviewed happened to be a former employee whom I had let go. And this former employee went ahead anyway and used the false allegations that the university told her were false. And these were used as the main bullet points in her 2018 media attack that uh, took me down and destroyed my life. That's essentially what happened. I mean, what comes to mind for me is, uh, is this a Title IX situation where due process has been thrown out the window and an accusation is taken as as the truth, and you're kind of sitting out there uh, essentially defenseless against these? Is that really how it all came down in terms of your interaction with the uh, university staff and everything else, everybody else? I, I, I think it's, it's a great question. I think the way that I view it is that uh, it's trial by media, it's guilt by accusation, and yes, this was all under the umbrella of Title IX, which has been in the news lately. But uh, the way that Title IX was uh, developed uh, as at the time that I was at the university, it was, in my opinion, weaponized such that there was no, no due process, that the accused stood with virtually no way to defend themselves. And I'm not just talking about me, but uh, a, number, a number of cases throughout the country. For instance, uh, I wanted to be able to produce the hundreds of witnesses who could testify to my conduct as a professor, as a supervisor, and I was told that I could not produce them, that they were considered character witnesses and that they were not allowed to be presented. Uh, furthermore, even those who were making these complaints Uh, they themselves were not subjected to any kind of cross-examination. And as I noted in my book, uh, the fact is, is that under Title IX, those who are accused have fewer rights than those who are accused of murder in a court of law. Uh, So fortunately, it appears that uh, there's been an increasing move to try to fix this 
to make sure that there is fairness and due process when it comes to Title IX, when it comes to these sorts of issues. I mean, I'm sure you had sort of the whole gamut of, of reactions to this as this was coming down and eventually you essentially walk away from your position. I did. Uh, I did, uh, Eric. I, I voluntarily uh, resigned. I, I was, by the way, never sanctioned. I was never fired. I voluntarily resigned uh, because it was just too much for my family. The, the anguish and the pain that my children and my family uh, was suffering was frankly just too much. And uh, I walked away from it all. So uh, uh, Hans Kafka, the famous uh, European writer uh, who liked to write about justice all the time, his book, The Trial, uh, among others, uh, his name has come up recently, given what's uh, happening on the uh, national scale. But this happened to you. You found yourself in a Kafkaesque situation where there was no winning it. And that led then to, you know, just kind of living with this situation where you experienced uh, authentic injustice in a major way affecting your life, all the assumptions under undergirding your life. And uh, you eventually decide, and you've never actually told me this before, but what made you decide to write Aftermath, the book that's coming out on the 22nd of May? Well, it's a, it's a good question. I, I frankly wasn't planning to write a book. I was uh, in uh, deep despair and I couldn't sleep and I wanted to kill myself. And I woke up one morning sometime before five o'clock in the morning with nothing to do. So I sat at my desk and I'm a writer, so I write. And I started to just write my thoughts, uh, not really having any idea what I was doing with that. But uh, that became the basis for what turned into the book Aftermath. I, I thought I was writing to myself until it became a daily ritual where I sat at the desk early every morning and would write about what, what I was experiencing in the aftermath when I had lost virtually everything in my life, my career, my reputation, uh, my income. It was, uh, I was um, uh, a pariah in my own neighborhood. I was professionally destroyed. And, um, you know, when you, when you find yourself uh, in that situation where it happens almost instantaneously, it's a very surreal experience. Uh, and um, I think I was trying to understand it myself. You and I met uh, last, uh, last, last fall, um, uh, and uh, I read your book almost immediately because we had the opportunity at Republic uh, Book Publishers to uh, bring this book out. And I came away feeling I'd, I've not at any time recently uh, read a book that's so intensely personal. Uh, that actually you, the reader, are suffering along with Alec uh, as he is going through this impossible, deeply nightmarish situation where everything in terms of his own expectation of what is just and what is unjust is turned upside down. And it's, it's, um, 
it's a journey through the darkness of night. I mean, it really is. And it's a, it's an, it's a work of literature in the best sense of the word. I mean, it really, um, is, it should be an award-winning book, uh, uh, when that comes to pass. Um, what, was it hard to write? Was it hard to write it? I mean, you described that, but, uh, was it, were you able to, uh, deal with the emotional issues you were dealing with as you were writing? Um, and was it kind of transferring what you were feeling in your heart to the page so that it wasn't all hanging on your shoulders or in your heart or whatever, but it was actually, I'm looking for a word, but it, it, it it's a transference to the page from the suffering of the individual. It's a curious thing. This was probably the only thing that I've ever written, certainly the only book that I've ever written where I did not have a single day of difficulty in writing. It just came out. Uh, I can't explain it. I wrote every morning without fail, no matter where I was. Uh, sometimes I was traveling. I would be uh, in a hotel or at an airport or wherever I was. I wrote every morning without fail, and it was never a struggle. It just came out, uh, and I can't explain it. But it's never happened before or since. But in this case, it did. Uh, you and I have uh, uh, this kind of experience uh, in common, but we also have uh, a university we both went to in, in, in different decades. But um, in my own case, uh, I was living a very successful conventional life when I ran into a brick wall. Uh, and I said a prayer at that time and said, now I've written three Christian books. And one of the things that is remarkable about this, and I want you to tell this story because it is so profoundly central to what happens here in terms of the way you treat the people that went after you, um, is you, you, you read Lee Strobel's very famous best-selling book called A Case for Christ. Uh, tell me a little bit about your faith background, and then tell me a little bit about that experience. Sure. I, you know, frankly, didn't believe in anything. I was uh, a heathen. I I was a non-believer. I didn't That's believe- That's the third in a, thing we have in common. <laughs> I didn't believe in anything, Eric, at all. I I thought that once, you know, we passed from this world, that was it. And it used to actually cause me quite a bit of anxiety just thinking about it. But a good friend of mine, a few years back, uh, he and I were talking, and I said something like, why do bad things happen to good people? Sort of the, one of those perennial questions. And this was in light of some investigation I was doing at the time involving a wrongful conviction. And my friend, his name is Kevin, he gave me this book, uh, The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. Now, when I looked at the cover of the book, I have to admit, I had absolutely no intention of reading it. Uh, when I saw the title, I thought, oh, goodness, you know, I, I don't believe in any of this. Uh, but I uh, have wait, a, Let me uh, interrupt for a second. So you sure. said, I don't believe in any of this, but did you know anything about it? I knew nothing. Uh, I was completely ignorant. In fact, I didn't know that Jesus existed. I literally thought it was a myth uh, until, of course, I began to read Lee Strobel's book, because the the great thing about the book is that Lee wrote it for skeptics. Uh, like me, he actually went into 
the idea of writing his book to persuade his own wife that Jesus was a myth. And what struck me, though, is I have this habit of I'll see how an author begins their books because I want to understand how they ply their craft. But at the beginning of Lee Strobel's book, he talked about himself, how he was an investigative reporter, which is what I was, and how he was investigating a wrongful conviction, which is what I did. And further, that he was in the Chicago area, which is where I was. And I was uh, sort of stunned by that. So I thought, well, maybe I should keep reading the book. It seems almost too coincidental. The book does a tremendous job of showing the historical proof that Jesus existed. He goes much beyond that. But for me, that was the first stage. The second thing was Lee Strobel was talking about another book in his own book, and that other book was the Bible. And I thought, well, gosh, well, maybe I should read the Bible because that's the source that he's referring to over and over again. So I got myself the Bible and I started with the Gospels. And I have to tell you, Eric, the Gospels blew my mind because everything that Jesus said 2000 years ago applied to then, it applies to today, and it applies forever into the future about how we are to be, how we should be, what we should strive for. Uh, It's about love and forgiveness and redemption and restoration and all these things. There's, there's, it's just perfect. And that got me telling my own children the stories of Jesus from the Bible as a way of um, telling bedtime stories. And they just uh, gobbled it up. They loved it. Uh, and that, that's, my, that's, that's the beginning of my journey to faith. But actually, the beginning of your journey um, to faith, uh, the, uh, the, the wall of unbelief was cracked by uh, this um, attack on you and on your career but more importantly, I think on your assumptions about what life is about. Absolutely. And all of those things came crumbling down almost instantaneously because the structure was probably weak in its foundation. Well, I mean, the, the crazy thing is that when my life was destroyed in 2018, I suddenly started to hear from a lot of friends uh, from different parts of the country, including my friend Kevin, who had given me the book, The Case for Christ. And what I soon discovered was that virtually all of those who were coming to my aid, if you will, they all happened to be followers of Jesus. Almost all of them, not all of them, but almost all of them. And it was hard to sort of ignore that. And then the next thing I knew, I found myself uh, reading books about Jesus. I was ordering books and reading them. Uh, I couldn't, frankly, do much of anything else to, to be perfectly candid. I was drinking heavily and on the floor, uh, popping prescription pills. And I couldn't focus on television. I couldn't focus on other books. But for whatever reason, the one thing that I could focus on were books about Jesus. And I read one book after another. In fact, I was even given a book uh, by my father. It was a a book about Jesus, but it was intended to dismantle uh, Jesus. By your father? By my father, but the book um, actually <laughs> did the opposite because even though the book was written by a skeptic, this skeptic could not explain the great miracles that Jesus had performed in the first century. And in fact, he essentially said, "Well, they they were what they were, 
And there were other people who pr- pr- performed miracles back then, although they, they charged for these miracles. Jesus did not. But the thing for me was, wow, here's a skeptic who was trying to dismantle Jesus, but he couldn't, couldn't dismantle the miracles. And if anything, I think that reinforced uh, my beliefs. And, uh, but, but this was the period when um, it, it, my, my faith was, frankly, the one thing that saved my life. Uh, I, I think it's the one thing that got me through the deepest, darkest moments of despair I'll never forget it. I often think about how my faith, uh, how the Gospels sustained me and continues to sustain me to this day. After you read a case, The Case for Christ uh, by Lee uh, Strobel, uh, did you start, uh, did you think of uh, attending a church or anything like that? Or were you doing this more or less on your own, uh, under your own strength, etc.? Well, Eric, I was mostly self-taught. I was reading these books uh, one after the other. But one day I was getting a haircut and the the lady who was cutting my hair got a phone call on her cell phone and she picked it up and she started speaking another language. When she got off the phone, I said, what language was that? I didn't recognize it. And she said it was Aramaic. And I said, oh, well, you know, that's the language that Jesus preached in. And she said, I know that, of course. And she said, do you go to church? And I said, uh, no. And she said, go to church. And so I thought, you know what? Maybe I should go to church because <laughs> reading about Jesus was one thing, but going to church, I hadn't even thought about doing that. So I started going to church. And then that actually led me to uh, getting baptized uh, last summer uh, and I continue uh, to go to church online now, of course, because of the coronavirus. Uh, but I, I read devotionals uh, actually written by you. Uh, I try to stay in the Bible every day uh, because I think it keeps me connected and sustains me. Uh, and it's now a part of my daily life. This uh, process of going through a period of uh, deep trouble, I... Uh, I have a, a wonderful line from Psalm 50, 15, the 15th uh, verse of Psalm 50, which says, call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will honor me. And I have seen that, you know, it's, it's sliced into thirds, calling upon God. He will answer that prayer, essentially. And uh, you will become basically his ambassador in this world. I mean, whether you're you're giving your life over to Jesus, you become a follower, a believer. Uh, you rest everything on your faith in Jesus Christ and on the truth of the Gospels. And uh, this certainly happened to me. And I I thought of myself just like you think of yourself as the least likely person. Uh, to have come over to the side of uh, Jesus Christ uh, in my life. It made all the difference for me because I, like you, was a great believer, not in nothing, but in myself. And when that little edifice started crumbling, it it woke me up to how absurd it was and how uh, truly weak I actually was. And the Lord strengthened me. In a, in, a, in a crisis. And I, I, I feel that there's so many things in your story. I must say that I never have suffered the way you did. And I never 
I always saw my own dilemmas of my own making, whereas I don't see that in your story at all. But what I do see in your story is one of the most um, moving and astonishing account of suffering and redemption and, 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 and actually coming out a new person at the end of it. And, and I, I, the, you said you're a writer and you certainly are a great writer. You are um, because when you're t- flipping the pages so fast, you can't even sort of keep up with it. It's because the writing is so good. I like to sort of uh, hold on to words and I read slowly, but in your case, I read very quickly because it's a, it's a, a very, very powerful narrative that really touches the heart and, and touches the darker sides of life and how, um, and yet, light is brought into this story at the right time. Uh, So one of the things I want to ask you is because you did a very unusual thing after you started going through this, you returned to the mission you had been on at the university of helping people that had been incarcerated uh, unjustly or were um, kind of not being paroled when they should have been paroled. And you, you leapt right back into that, even though, um, you know, trying to figure out how you were going to afford all this was still probably uh, uh, large in your, your mind. But anyway, tell us about that because it's part of the book. Absolutely. Uh, the same friend who had given me the case for Christ called me up out of the blue to see if I was okay. And then he said, Hey, do you think you could come to Oklahoma? I have a friend who wants to create a nonprofit to help inmates who are either wrongfully convicted or excessively sentenced. And I thought to myself, gosh, that's exactly what I want to do because that's what I've been doing for years. And I was actually advised by my lawyers not to go uh, because I was in the midst of this terrible ordeal at the university. And my lawyers said that it would jeopardize the whole situation, but uh, I didn't hesitate for a second. To be honest, I just I just went, and uh, it was it was so great. Uh, I'm so glad that I did it because I was able to help uh, literally dozens of women gain their regain their freedom through parole and commutation. And uh, you know, I made a number of friends along the way, and I think in some ways it helped to heal me a little bit. Uh, at my darkest moments, because I wasn't thinking about myself. I was trying to figure out how to help other people who were, frankly, in much greater need than myself. And uh, to me, that was uh, just a, a beautiful experience that I will always cherish. Well, it's, it's uh, and you're carrying it now, aren't you? You're, you're still very, very much involved, and it's becoming a bigger part of your life. Uh, every Virtually every day, I'm working on cases involving inmates who are either wrongfully convicted and or excessively sentenced. I was actually just working on it this morning. Uh, I get I had a phone call from an inmate today and uh, they often call me, although it's hard now with the coronavirus, a lot of the prisoners are on lockdown. But but yeah, it's, it's essentially a part of my daily life, which is uh, to help as many people as I can who are incarcerated uh, to help them with their cases when they've run out of options, when they have no alternatives, uh, but where they were either wrongfully 
convicted or excessively sentenced. And I can tell you there are a lot of people out there like that. And I can feel the anguish uh, that they go through. I can hear it on the phone. I've seen it in person because I've been in prisons all over the United States interviewing inmates who are suffering. And this, I, I don't mean to excuse whatever it is that they may have done. Uh, I just think, though, that it's kind of like the Bible says and what Jesus had talked about, which is that no one is to be thrown away, that everyone has value. And uh, I also do believe in second chances. I believe in mercy. I believe in forgiveness uh, and in compassion. I think we frankly need more of that in the world. Uh, there's so much vitriol and anger and hatred and a need for revenge and things like that. And frankly, it, it doesn't, those things don't consume me. I, I don't, that's just not who I am. I, I, you sort of referenced this earlier, but I, I'm not the same person I was before. Uh, after all that that's happened, uh, I'm on a different path now. And uh, there's more peace as I move forward uh, working on these cases. I don't think you can get around this, but it sounds to me like uh, this prison ministry is um, uh, metamorphosizing into uh, a kind of a Christian ministry, uh, not to evangelize them, but just to necessarily uh, not to do that necessarily or to do that, uh, depending. But um, you're doing actually Christian work. Well, I got to tell you, I mean, you know, Jesus talks about that in, in the Gospels uh, about, you know, helping those. I mean, these are not his words, but, you know, helping those without a voice, helping uh, be, being of service, being a servant. And I consider myself a servant. And if I can be helpful to others, I, I want to. And I, the, the strange thing, by the way, is a lot of the inmates whom I have spoken with are actually believers themselves. Uh, and they are devout, and they really believe. In fact, one of them started her own uh, ministry uh, in prison, and they have Bible study, and it's a great part of, in many cases, their lives. And I think that's a wonderful thing, and I, um, I'm always sort of honored to hear about it. And in fact, many of the people that um, I work with on these cases, my friends in places like Oklahoma, they themselves are also believers because they understand that that there is kind of a mission here when you're helping those who are without help, uh, without a voice, who are in these terrible situations. And uh, I guess for me, it was always sort of part of my life, but it's taken on a different dimension because it is part of my faith too. It is inextricably linked, the two things. Great, great stories of transformation. And so I had this really weird thought that jumped into my head that I, uh, when we can travel again, would love to travel out to Oklahoma or wherever you're, you're going from time to time and, and go with you and experience what you're, you're dealing with there. Is that, is that permissible? Absolutely. Oh, I, I would love that. <laughs> I mean, you know, I got to tell you, going inside a prison if you haven't been in one, and I've been into several as a visitor, it's a pretty uh, stark experience. I've been to, I've actually interviewed uh, people on death row in California and in Florida where they are shackled. Uh, you know, you feel the gates closing behind you as you walk further into the, peri the perimeter. 
And, uh, you know, there's, there's such great suffering in prison, but I also found that there was also great faith inside of prisons where many of the inmates are true believers who, who pray to God because they've lost everything else. They've lost their families. They've lost their children. They've lost their, their lives in many ways, but they've found their lives also through their faith and how they pray to God. And I've actually seen that up close and it's really powerful. Uh, but I would, I would love it if you'd come along with me to see some of this. It's great to see. A few years ago, I traveled to Green Bay, Wisconsin to promote my book, uh, Getting to Know Jesus. And uh, the lady who was shepherding me around, somebody I know and is a publisher I've worked with, um, thought it'd be a great idea to do two things for Eric to sort of uh, see the world from her eyes. And she was a 911 operator. Uh, and uh, the first one was to go to a prison. So I went to the prison. I did a, uh, sat at a round table around uh, with the convicts, all men. And uh, it was just amazing to hear what their crimes were because some of them were pretty bad. Uh, and some of them were, you know, gambling and other things that got them there. Uh, but I found it to be a very, uh, I, I, I felt a great deal of sympathy uh, for them in, a, in the right kind of way. I wasn't excusing in my own head uh, why they were there. They, most of them were exactly as you described. Uh, they had had plenty of time to think about why they were there, and they seemed uh, very interesting. And uh, and I, I got a lot out of it, even though it was a one-time experience. The other one was a ride-along, uh, where I got to ride along with the uh, a police officer at night uh, through the city of Green Bay. Fortunately, nothing bad happened, so no shootouts, no nothing. But it was so actually to be inside a, a policeman's car rather than um, getting pulled over for not having my license or going through a red light or something uh, was a great experience. It, it showed me a side of life that I know very little about, but I want to know more about because I, I think I need to know more about it. And I might be able to bring some useful things to that world as well. Absolutely. Uh, I think it's probably fair to say that unless you're directly or indirectly impacted by the criminal justice system, you may not give it a lot of thought. But the fact is the United States has the highest incarceration rate in the world. We imprison over 2 million people. As far as I know, I think we spend more on incarceration than we do on education. And there's something going on with that. And it does, in fact, affect not just those who are put in prison, but their families and their communities. And in, in a sense, we're all affected by it. So I think it is important uh, that we are aware of it, that there's growing awareness about it, and that we do something about it. Well, I'm glad you um, incorporated this experience, the Oklahoma experience, uh, in the book. Um, I think it's a very important part of the book. But So I want to conclude uh, uh, the questions now, but I just want to urge anybody and everybody listening to this is that Alex, Alex's book is one of the best advanced review books I've ever seen. Uh, it has the most amazing, uh, we've had the most amazing, or it has had the most amazing response to it. It's going to be uh, available in bookstores as uh, an ebook or as a hardcover. Uh, 
Uh, it's going to have, Alec is going to do the normal um, promotional stuff to get the word out about the book. But I really encourage uh, anybody and everybody listening to this that this is a must-read book. Uh, it's highly unusual. It's beautifully written. It's powerful in its testimony about what can happen to any of us uh, and um, what happened to Alec on the way uh, to despair. He met Jesus Christ through a friend, through a book, and that that has really made all the difference. And actually that brought uh, he and I into each other's company. And we've become friends over the last several months. So I'm privileged to have been asking you these questions on your program. Um, and uh, I look forward to great success and, uh, you know, more time spending together doing these things. Thanks, Eric. I, it was wonderful speaking with you. And I, too, consider you a great friend. And I'm looking forward to doing more with you as the days go on. So thanks for joining me today, Alec. Listeners, I urge you to read Alec's new book, Aftermath, when it felt like life was over. It's available for pre-order on Amazon and elsewhere, and it'll hit bookstores May 22nd. Also, stay tuned for Alec Klein's upcoming podcast series, Life on the Other Side, when he explores the lives of prisoners, their families, and those helping them find justice and redemption. I look forward to listening with all the rest of you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Please stay tuned for our next podcast involving stories from prisoners, their families, and those helping them find justice and redemption. And please subscribe to the Life on the Other Side podcast on iTunes. This podcast is sponsored by Republic Book Publishers, which brings you books tackling the important issues of the day and the upcoming book, Aftermath when it felt like life was over by Alec Klein. For more information, please check out republicbookpublishers.com.